Take it from the top. Take one. This is Within. Shifting the conversation on who is in prison. Recording from the vault in the Denver complex of the Colorado Department of Corrections. I'm Denise Presson, resident at Denver Women's Correctional Facility. I'm Andrew Draper, resident at Sterling Correctional Facility. I'm Ashley Hamilton, the founder and director of the DU Prison Arts Initiative. Here at Within, as we work to shift the conversation on who is in prison, we've asked our guests and our hosts to freely share their perspective. The opinions expressed in this podcast are strictly those of the person who gave them. In the immortal words of Jay-Z, men lie, women lie, but numbers don't lie. So we wanted to hear from somebody who looks at the prison from the outside, whose job it is to look at the patterns, statistics, and the numbers. So we brought in one of DUPI's faculty advisory board members, criminologist and professor at the University of Denver, Dr. Jeffrey Lin. Dr. Lin studies crime and punishment in the United States, focusing on the complex interactions between institutions and individuals in the criminal justice system. He's interested in the ways that criminal outcomes are impacted by systematic arrangements of policy and practice. Using quantitative and comparative methods, he has examined these dynamics among juvenile offenders, parolees, and sex offenders, and through analysis of media coverage of serious crime and the effects of large-scale changes to state correctional policies. Since coming to DU, he has continued to research correctional reform in California. He also has been working with the state of Colorado to evaluate the effectiveness of new strategies of supervising offenders in our communities. He has studied at the management of sex offenders in Colorado, assessing the utility of laws designed to control their continued offending. Let's go hear about some numbers. And today we have Dr. Jeffrey Lynn. Put it there. Pound. Boom. Thank you. He's in the house. Yeah, nice <laughs> Welcome, Jeff. Thank yeah. you so much. So happy to be here. And uh, one thing that may surprise you about Dr. Lynn is that he makes pottery in his free time <laughs> for the past 30 years. That's three decades. That's true. It's a lot of pottery. making bowls <laughs> <laughs> in cups. That's wonderful. Yeah. It's got to be very relaxing. Yes, it is. It huh. is. Uh, yes, it's very centering. Nice. <laughs> Do you quote stats? In your mind, as you do pottery, like uh, are you I going do not. around? No, no, I, I, there are I don't, nine thousand people at, uh, incarcerated in this county. <laughs> I'm not very good at taking work home with me. <laughs> well, let's just jump right in it. Oh, well, go ahead, Ashley. I cut you off. You were going to say something. I was just going to ask if you could kind of talk a little bit more broadly about um, your your work. So tell us, like, you know, we read your little bio, but sure. can you kind of give us a, a sense of of what you do? Um, sure, I study crime um, and justice in the United States. Um, I really, I would just say the overarching idea in my work is that crime is a joint production between what we do and how the state responds to us, right? And I think that um, I try to push against this um, general idea that crime is pathological or it is only sort of bad people doing bad things, but rather... um, all of my work and my thinking really revolves around this idea that, you know, obviously we do things in, um, people do things in society that are considered criminal or that harm others, but also the state is 
oriented to us in different ways, right? Some neighborhoods are more highly policed than others. Some people have more access to resource than, resources than others. The courts treat us differently um, depending on our characteristics. Correctional systems might treat us differently depending on our characteristics. Um, and so, you know, one thing, you know, for example, I ask my students a lot, um, you know, have you committed crime? You know, I have 100 student criminology courses and I just I don't ask them to answer, but I just ask them to think, like, have you committed crime? What crimes have you committed? You know, how are you different from people that have been caught and arrested? And so um, it's really this notion that crime is a product of between what we do and how the state responds to us, how the state is oriented to us and how closely the state watches us. And there's no better example of that than, um, you know, my research on parole, which shows that you know, it showed very clearly that um, the closer the state watches you, in other words, the more, the higher your supervision level, the more likely you are to be violated on parole. And that's controlling for who you are, the crimes you've committed, your criminal history, your mental health status, um, you know, anything else that might be um, seen to be correlated with your risk of crime. Still, the way that the state looks at you and how closely they look at you um, affects how, uh, how likely it is you are to be detected for the crime that you're going to be committed that you have committed or the violation you've committed. And that's true um, for all of us at all times, right? I've lived in highly urbanized areas um, where I would not dare drink a beer on my front porch because police would come by and ticket you for that, or you'd get in trouble for that. I now live in a very suburban area where I really have no fear drinking a beer on my front porch or on my um, sidewalk. Um, I did this just a couple nights ago with my neighbor. Um, you know, what has changed? Has the beer changed? Is it less dangerous? Have I changed somehow? Has the effect of beer changed on me? No. I mean, it's just the environment I live in has changed. And so just literally the very neighborhood you live in affects your chances of criminal justice contact. And, you know, if we just, you know, as I ask my students and I'd ask every everyone listening to think about, you know, how have you evaded detection from, mm. you know, law enforcement before? Have you been given a break ever? Was there something you did where you could have been caught for it, but you weren't, right? Or you were treated more leniently because of who you were um, or who that officer was? Um, so that's really the sort of driving idea behind my work. Um, and I examine that in a number of settings. I've examined that with um, kids getting sentenced in court, with parolees, with sex offenders, um, uh, various criminal justice settings. So that's the driving force behind it. But what what is your goal in in finding all this information? What mm. is the what's your end goal? That's a great question. Um, so for me, I, you know, I think there's a, a bit of a when I came up in academia, there was a bit of a division. There was sort of this like purist. Um, and, and in the program I was in, it was very much dominated by this purist view that you should do research, you should uh, write for the purpose of advancing theory or advancing, um, answering academic questions. And I, that never really sat very well with me. Um, I always wanted to do, you know, my question in graduate school and beyond was, so what? What, you know, why am I doing this? Like, who is affected? How am I helping the world, right? Like, I have certain talents, I have certain assets, and I, I don't want them just to go into papers that no one ever reads. So for me, it's involved um that's involved in engaging directly with um state and local government um and so you know my research training was really um working for a couple of nonprofits in new york that did policy oriented research in partnership with government agencies and that's really how i became oriented as a professional and that's what really drives my work that i want my findings to be translatable 
to policymakers, to stakeholders, to key actors, to correctional systems and officials. And I want them, I want to be able to translate that in a way that's understandable um, and in a way that where action can be taken because of the findings, right? And so really it's about, you know, um, taking research beyond the ivory tower, right, um, to borrow a phrase, and 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 bringing it to, to the world and seeing what, what good can science do? Because I fundamentally consider myself a scientist more than anything else, right? So, um, you know, I try to be very objective in my work, but the findings have policy implications, they have practice implications, and um, I, want those, I want those to translate. So that's, um, that's how I really use my work to engage, you know, policymakers in the state. With the numbers that you provide to these different agencies and groups and, uh, and people, have you found that your numbers have been manipulated in any way? That's a great question. I mean, I think um, I haven't found that they've been manipulated so much as sometimes they are ignored, right? I mean, this is the, rea- the, the reality of policymaking is that um, it's not objective, right? You don't just bring science to a policymaker and they say, oh, that, you know, this is so convincing. This is right. Um, let's do it, right? I mean, there has to be a political window to do it as well. So, um, and I worked in California for a long time and we worked on parole and correctional reform, you know, um, California for many, many years now has been trying to drive down its prison populations. And um, and it had to starting in 2011, basically because a federal court made them do it. But, you know, um, prior to that, they had been trying to do it in any number of ways. But the politics of the state were so complex and such a hindrance to correctional change that, um, you know, myself and my my colleagues and peers, we had a number of provocative findings, I think, that um, directly would inform correctional policy, especially around parole release and parole violation and revocation um, policies. But um, not a lot was done with those necessarily, or only a limited amount got done with those findings just because the political environment wasn't very conducive to implementing those kinds of findings or adopting those kinds of findings. I mean, as you know, I mean, I know we might talk about media a little bit later, but, you know, political institutions are part of this. Media institutions are part of this. Um, popular opinion is part of this, right? We think of California as this, like, super liberal state, but actually it's quite divided politically. So you have a lot of people who would support, you know, lower incarceration rates, more reentry services, more reentry funding, et cetera, and so forth. But you also have a lot of people who wouldn't. And that's the case in Colorado as well, right? We're a sort of purple state where you have a lot of people that do support you know, and especially with our new governor, who's sort of leftist governor, um, a lot of people who do support these kinds of um, rehabilitative approaches. But then, you know, a lot, a good chunk of our population here in Colorado would not also has a fairly tough on crime, hardline, conservative view. Um, and so, you know, part of, for me, a lot of my work is trying to identify, now I feel kind of mid-career, is trying to identify policy and political windows with which that we can um, exploit in a way to, um, implement these kinds of policies to do things that are evidence-based, right? Because again, the, the science doesn't necessarily translate unless the state is ready to translate that science, is ready to accept that science. And I think, you know, maybe jumping ahead a little bit here, but um, I think we, we're in a very opportune window for that right now. If we were to sort of zoom out and think about just from a historical perspective, I think one thing um, when we were prepping for your interview that we all got really excited about was if you could talk a little bit about the way that we have histor- historically gotten to our current moment of mm-hmm. mass incarceration in the nation. So but you, like, what are the numbers? Like what has happened yeah. right, to get us here? And then also if you could maybe touch specifically on Colorado. Um, sure. Well. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So um, for most of our history in America, we had a relatively low and stable incarceration rate. In fact, our incarceration rate in this country was 
in line with um, countries that you would think were were like us, right? If I if I asked you all to name countries that were like us, you might say the UK, Canada, Australia, maybe Japan, Sweden, Finland, right? Like sort of westernized democracies. Um, and all of them have today, you know, incarceration rates of around 100 per 100,000, whereas ours, depending on how you measure it, goes from 500 to 700 per 100,000. And we have the highest incarceration rate in the world, and it's not even close, right? So, you know, when we talk about American exceptionalism, this is one form of American exceptionalism. <laughs> um, but, um, but it wasn't always so. Our incarceration rates only started rising um, and in 1980. And so if you look at an, like a curve of this, the incarceration rate over time, you see it flat for um, decades and decades through the 20th century. And then suddenly in 1980, the thing explodes and goes basically, you know, has this unbelievably steep slope to, um, and between 1980 and about 2009, we went from, you know, an average, you know, roughly average incarcerator to the world's top incarcerator by a wide margin. So why and how does that happen? The sort of most direct effects come from um, changes to sentencing laws, making sentences longer, um, putting more people in prison than we had before and keeping them there longer. It has to do with the war on drugs as well, expanding yeah. the um, kind of roster of crimes that could result in imprisonment and um, that uh, and how long you would spend incarcerated. So I think between 1980 and 2000, your um, the time spent incarcerated for a violent or property crime in prison about doubled, um, and the average time spent incarcerated for a drug crime increased about sixfold during that time. Right. Wow. So, um, so you know that's a formula for mass incarceration. <laughs> you put more people in for longer, right? And this has to do with mandatory minimums, the war on drugs, etc. And you know a lot of state level sentencing changes. Um, you know, I could I could get deep in the weeds with this, and I'll try, but I'll try not to. Um, uh, so you know, so what happens? So our incarceration rate explodes to the point where it becomes nearly untenable, right? So between 1980 and 2010, um, you know, it just it blows up from 100 per 100,000 to you know 500, 600 per 100,000, um, and so now we you know we have about a quarter of the world's prisoners in our country, and we have nowhere near a quarter of the world's people, right? So we, we over-incarcerate at a very high rate. You know, is that okay? That That's kind of up to anyone to answer, right? I'm not here to say that's good or bad. Um, if you think that incarceration rate is justifiable, that's your view, right? Um, if, I, if I don't, that's my view. So, you know, I really try to move away from this kind of moral judgment about whether a high incarceration rate is hot, uh, a high incarceration rate is good or bad, right? But we can talk empirically about um, what it means to have incar high, incar high incarceration rate. Number one, it means a lot of people are incarcerated, right? So we have a lot of people who are not working, who are not being parents, who are not uh, members of their community. Um, and, you know, obviously we can also talk about the effects of incarceration and what people are like when they come out of prison, what their job prospects are, what their mental health looks like, what their physical health looks like, what their um, families look like after they get out of prison, how dateable or marriageable they are after they get out of prison. These, you know, these kinds of effects, it's like when you throw a, um, a, a pebble into a pond, right? There's this initial kind of, you know, splash, but then it ripples outward. And those ripples outward reflect all the effects that incarceration has on our country from families to employment markets to communities, right? We don't even know our country's actual unemployment rate um, because we don't count people who are in college and we don't count people who are incarcerated, right? So if 1% of people in America are incarcerated, we're taking them out of the unemployment 
calculus. That means our unemployment rate is 1% higher than what the Bureau of Labor Statistics is telling us it is. Like, this is how, this is how far the impacts go, right? And, and this isn't even the human impact. This is just kind of statistical impact. The point is that there's a lot, you know, there are these impacts that mass incarceration have. There are direct and indirect impacts, right? But since 2009, our incarceration rates have been coming down in America, right? Why? Um, is it because suddenly we have um, gotten softer on crime? Um, is it that, you know, have, is there less crime in America? There is, um, there appears to be, but that doesn't appear to be what's driving down our incarceration rates, right? Um, basically, we kind of tapped out on prison. Um, <laughs> you know, it just, it's really expensive, right? How much does it cost to keep someone in prison in Colorado? I think it's around maybe 50K a year, yeah. something like that. As we went through various recessions, um, you know, as we've gone through various recessions, states, states have started to run out of money. Right. And um, they can't pay for this anymore. And we're also, you know, the research is clear on this, that mass incarceration is not a particularly effective way to drive down crime. Right. Most research has shown, you know, there, there are different studies of this, but, you know, the consensus is generally that mass, mass incarceration has driven down crime a bit. Of course, if you lock up a bunch of people, your crime rates are probably going to go down. Right. But um, only by, you know, maybe five to 12 percent of the crime drop we've seen since 1994-ish, and crime's been going down since 1994 or so. Um, about only 5% to 12% of that was caused by mass incarceration, which means that 88 to 95% of that crime drop we would have got for free without incarcerating so many people. And that's a fairly simplistic way to look at it, but it is, also, it is a way to look at it. So, um, and the general consensus is that mass incarceration has not been particularly effective at driving down crime. And I think that, you know, for the folks in the room, that's probably not that surprising. And we can get into some of the reasons why that is. Um, so we basically spent a lot of money for something that didn't yield much, right? And so, you know, I think the a figure I read this morning was it's about 75, probably this was like a 2007 figure. So it's probably in the 80s, $85 billion a year we spend in this country on corrections. Um, so that's a lot of money, right? How many roads can you fix with $85 billion? How many kids um, do you make school better for, right? How many poor folks can you, you know, provide food or financial assistance to, right? Uh, you know, I can think of a lot of things to do with $85 billion a year. Um, so... Um, but so they've come down in part because of the money issue as states, states have run out of money. And that's kind of in conjunction with the idea that, um, you know, that it doesn't work very well. So the science of it and the financial aspect of it has opened, you know, back to this idea of the policy window. It's really opened this window up where states are now seeking ways to actively seeking ways to reduce their correctional populations, right? But it's very hard to do this, right? But since 2009, our incarceration rates have come down, but they haven't come down that much, right? There's resistance to this. Um, and a lot of that is institutional and political. So when I remember this is maybe 2009, 2010, when Colorado really started um, deliberately trying to find ways to reduce its prisoner populations, they um, uh, the first eight or nine people released um, we're on the front page of the Denver Post the next day after they got released. And it said, here are the, you know, the article is mm -hmm. basically, here are the people coming back to your communities. Here's what they've been charged with. They're <laughs> people who have assaulted others, drunk drivers, people who, you know, uh, robbers, this and that, right? And, you know, it's just this kind of fear-mongering, um, which, you know, I don't begrudge people's right to be afraid in their lives, but also I think it's somewhat irresponsible on the part of media institutions to present it that way. And it certainly serves as an impediment, a, a cultural impediment to reducing prisoner populations when, you know, you're going to get called out like that 
by releasing nine people, right? Now, what happens when you release 10K, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. If you really want to drive your prisoner population down to where it was, you know, before mass incarceration started, you know, you're not talking about releasing nine people here. You're talking about releasing... 80% of your population with that and that's not happening right but it, let's say you want to go up to you want to release 10% or you really want to release 15% who are those people right uh, can we guarantee that they'll never commit a crime again i can't right and so it it speaks also to what's our cultural tolerance for their recidivism rates right you know if one of those people murders another person if one of those people commits a sexual offense against another person Does that whole endeavor end? Because that's basically how it works in America, right? Um, You know, I wrote a paper last year about the um, murder of DOC director Tom Clements in 2013. And, you know, that actually, you know, now I'll touch on Colorado's incarceration rate a bit. Colorado's incarceration rate came down um, between 2009 and 2013 also, like many other states. But then it reverses, it flattens and reverses course. Why? A lot of it has to do with... um, elevated rates of parole violation and revocation in the wake of the Tom Clements murder, right? We see, um, and, you know, parole, DOC parole um, actually takes a number of deliberate steps to crack down on parole violation rates, particularly absconding, and that um, the, the killer of Tom Clements, Evan Ebel, had, you know, absconded from supervision. He had cut his um, ankle monitor and absconded for supervi- from supervision. And so they were sort of responding directly to those issues, but the secondary and tertiary effects of that were that parole violation rates went up, parole revocation rates went up, more people went back to prison who came, who were on parole, and the parole board started releasing fewer people on discretionary parole as well. And so that's why our incarceration rate in Colorado flattened and actually has started to rise again. Um, the Division of Criminal Justice here in the state anticipates um, renewed prison growth going forward um, for a number of reasons, in part because, you know, felony filings are going up in district courts, but um, also because of um, dynamics that are happening on parole. So, you know, even when you have political will, like in Colorado, we have a liberal governor and, you know, a fairly divided state at this point, um, you know, there are other factors that um, keep you from, you know, just willingly or deliberately driving down your incarceration rate. There are so many institutions at play, so many views at play that, um, you know, it's not, again, you don't just bring science to decision makers and say, here it is, do what I say. You know, they have to have the the opportunity to do that. I mean, they're not, a politician is not going to listen to your science if it's going to cost them an election, right? Um, because that, and, and, you know, put yourself in the place of that policymaker. If I'm a policymaker and I say, and someone says, here's the science, but you know, this is the right thing to do, but it's going to cost you an election. I would say, well, I can't do that because I can only do good for this state if I'm in office. So if I lose this election, I can't help the people of Colorado. So I have to ignore your science right now. I have to ignore your evidence right now. And you know, when I have the, the power, po- the power yeah. and the political environment to do this. And then maybe we'll, let's revisit this. Right. So, um, that's somewhat what's happening in Colorado. That's why our incarceration rate is flat and likely to um, grow or our, let's just say our imprisonment rate is flat and likely to grow going forward. Can you tell us about in Colorado, um, just facts numbers wise, who is in prison? Who's coming in? Who's going out? What is the the landscape currently looking like? You know, it's hard for me to say who's coming in and who's going out because that's, you know, I don't even know what characteristics to focus on, right? Um, You know, we know that, you know, who's in prison, I mean, nationally and in Colorado, it tends to be men, you know, overwhelmingly tends to be men. Um, It tends to be, um, it's disproportionately people of color, 
And um, I think perhaps most importantly, it's disproportionately poor folks, right? And so, you know, we often talk about racial disparities and incarceration rates, who goes in, who comes out, who's in, um, and those are critical. I, I would not want to shift focus away from that in any way. But I think they need to be talked about alongside and intertwined with socioeconomic disparity, mm. right? Because it's really, a, a lot of it is a lot is about socioeconomics as much as it is about race. Both are factors, right? Um, in terms of the national, again, I don't know the Colorado statistics um, about entry and release well enough where I'd be comfortable kind of saying numbers. But um, in, in terms of national statistics, what we do find racially is that... Um, you know, as you go deeper into the criminal justice system, it gets less white, right? Um, and so you just see higher levels of racial disparity as you move from arrest to conviction, to sentencing, to incarceration and other sanctions. Um, however, there's an exception, and that is at the moment of parole from prison, um, it seems that uh, white folks get paroled more frequently from prison than non-white folks. And so, and, you know, and, and so this is, you know, another thing that's kind of central to my work and about criminal justice, which is that inequality accumulates, right? It's not, you know, we often, I think again, in the social media age in the 21st century, we tend to look at singular events, right? Um, police brutality, uh, you know, racist judges, or, you know, these sorts of uh, evidence of unequal treatment. Like I see a lot of kind of memes online about, um, you know, here's, here are two people that committed the same crime. Right. Both committed robbery, one white, one black. The, the black guy got, you know, X years in prison and the white guy got probation. You know, how can this be fair? Right. And I think, you know, that, that is an indicator of unfairness, but um, it, it's also kind of an unhealthy way to think about it, mm -hmm. you know, to just compare kind of like random cases. Right. Because I could essentially, um, you know, find random cases to put them together and prove any point I wanted to make, right? So we really want to think about the aggregate mm. numbers and what the aggregate numbers show us is that, you know, for whatever, for a number of reasons that we can continue to talk about here in, our, in the time we have, um, you know, uh, people of color and poor folks seem to be disadvantaged at various stages of criminal justice processing. And the result of that, the outcome of that is that the system gets, you know, the population gets less white the deeper into the system you, you go, um, except at the moment of prison parole, where white folks seem to get a bit of a break. Um, this may sound provocative, but to me, it's not very surprising given, you know, what I know as a person of color growing up um, in America and in the communities I've, I, I've lived in, um, that doesn't surprise me at all. No, it does not. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I do have a few questions for you. I mean, just to, you know, comment on what you said, um, I do believe that it's important to, you know, point out and to know and to understand that, you know, in those communities, uh, in the poorer communities, in the communities you know, that are majority black and brown, um, that you are right. You know, the income is less. So if you are arrested for a crime, you can't bond out. You can't, uh, you can't get legal representation as if you were raised in Cherry Creek mm -hmm. or anywhere else, right? And you do suffer. I believe I've suffered, you know, uh, racial profiling. I believe that, you know, being young, being black, being a male, I am a target. And I also have the, the perception that being a black man in America, um, you are an endangered species. And the reason I believe that is because we die at a high rate. We, come, we, we get incarcerated at a high rate. Um, 
we're less educated. And and that's just around just that's just that's just the reality of the situation. Um and I have suffered uh police brutality. I have suffered uh profiling again, like I said. Um but that doesn't mean that and that's not to make an excuse, right? No. Because everyone everyone's accountable for who they are and for the choices they make and for what they do, where they go, and what they decide, you know, how they want to live their life. However, the reality exists. That reality is there and it should not be ignored. I I do believe that, you know, a lot of people, even in not even, but the majority of suburbia America. Denver, you know, Colorado Springs, wherever, they don't believe that racism is real. Mm. And the reason they don't believe it's real is because they don't see it. That's right. Right. And because they don't see it, they're not conscious. Mm -hmm. And then when they see someone like me and I say, hey, racism is a real thing, Mm -hmm. they laugh me out the room like I don't know what I'm talking about. Right. Right. Even though I just got busted in the head over here. Right. So, I mean, I don't know how you prove that with stats. How does it make you feel, you know, when the numbers that you provide, right, are either ignored or accepted? Does that make you feel any kind of way or are you just like, you know, whatevs? (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm kind of like whatevs. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Because that's not a decision for you to make. Right. right? I mean, again, I kind of perceive my I mean, I view myself pretty much as a scientist. Right. Mm -hmm. You just provide that you do the study, you provide the evidence and then you kind of let it go at that point. Now, is that the role of science? I don't know. That's a question that's beyond me, right? (laughs) Like, should scientists also be activists? I don't, Mm. I don't know. Mm. Um, But um, so, you know, certainly I don't feel good if I do research and it doesn't seem to go anywhere, right? Or affect anything that, I mean, um, you know, I feel bad, especially if I feel the research is reliable and strong and can say something, then, um, you know, I I want someone to listen. Um, You know, some of that is because I I want the world to be a better place. And some of that is strictly ego, right? I just want to, you know, I just want to be listened to. Um, so, so, you know, it always feels bad when you're not listened to. So, but, you know, I've just been doing it a long time now. I'm, you know, 20 years into this career and, um, you know, I've seen, I've seen research go a lot of different ways. Right. I, um, and so, for me, I think just to keep my sanity and to continue, keep on keeping on, like, you know, I, I have to, you know, be somewhat objective about that and just focus on what's important. Right. Move to the next thing. Exactly. And just say like, look, this wasn't the time for this or, or, you know, look, this is the truth. Sometimes the research is not as good. Right. And I just, Mm -hmm. you know, this is just not as reliable or I'm not as certain in these findings. And, and so, you know, I don't know if I would listen to me if I were a policymaker, (laughs) so I can't really blame them for, you know, I mean, and this is partially just, these are the pathologies of academia, right. That, you know, we're constantly having to throw up every caution, every caveat, Right. Or like um, uh, every limitation in our study, because we want to make because, again, we we're trying to legitimize ourselves as scientists. And so we want to, you know, we don't make our research inherently political. We, you know, we don't infuse our research with our personal opinion. Right. Um, Because it needs to look scientific and it needs to adhere to the the contours of that of scientific disciplines. so, you know, again, like I, I think I've, it's just been so long that I, I'm not really, I don't take it too personally <laughs> anymore, right. but, um, you know, if I see, you know, pulling back from that a little bit, like if I see, if I think a state is going in a unwise direction, 
with its policies or the nation is going in an unwise direction with its policies or in a direction that is not supported um, very well by empirical evidence, then that does upset me, of course, in the, in, in the same way that it would upset me if I, you know, that if I thought educational policy was going in the wrong direction, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I was born in this country. I live in this country. I want this country to be the best it can be. You know, I think often as an offender, somebody that's in the inside, like I, it, it gets lost that correctional officers and staff and admin actually are people, human beings, and they're trying mm-hmm. to do the best that they mm-hmm. can. Have you uncovered anything that states like it, that inside facilities safety has either grown or decreased mm-hmm. over the growing populations? That's a great question. I'm not entirely certain about that. Like um, inmate on staff crime. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. those kinds of things. I don't. I don't know, honestly. Um, I think. I think the rate is relatively high in America, in part just because the numbers are high. people and institutions. <laughs> but um, I, I'm not certain about over time whether that's improved or not improved. And something else that you said earlier, that generally what happens is parolees, they go out, and then what kind of parolee is paroling out of prison? You know, the thing I'm really concerned about, especially in, you know, because I study community corrections, is the after, right? And this is a, another thing I talk about a lot, which is in America, you know, especially through, back to the media a little bit, right? Especially entertainment media, you know, uh, in America, when we hear narratives about incarceration, they always end at sentencing. There are very few exposures to you know, what's happening in prison. And that leads to us not thinking much about what happens in prison, right? And so, but every show ends and and news stories end the same way. You know, John Smith has been sentenced to this many years or sentenced to death or whatever. He receives a sanction for this awful, awful thing he did. And now we are rid of him, right? We wipe our hands clean of this person. And the final scene in the show is John Smith in shackles yelling back at his like incompetent attorney, <laughs> right? Uh, you, know, saying, you know, why didn't you do more? Right, or, you know, if it wasn't for you meddling kids, I would have got away with it. You know, whatever, you know, whatever he's saying. Right. Um, um, but, uh, you know, 95% of everyone in prison is coming home. Mm-hmm. Right. There's, you know, there's, you know, a significantly fewer, less than 10% of our prison population is serving a life or death sentence. That means everyone's coming back. Right. right. Which means when, you know, that scene of the person being taken to prison, <laughs> there is a corollary scene to that of the person being released <laughs> from prison. And that is not on television. Right. And that's what I ask mm-hmm. my students to think about. And that's what I ask mm-hmm. anyone I'm talking to to think about. What is the effect of prison? It's very easy to say, lock them up, throw away the key, put them in solitary, make it a dungeon, punish them, make them learn their lessons. When you you think that's the end of the story and we never have to see this person again but this person's coming back to their community they're coming back to your community right they maybe are you know they're going to be working in co- your community maybe they're dating your daughter right like you know if that's the case if the you know again back to this idea of are prisoners different from us or inmates different from us are they separate from us or are they part of the community and how should they be considered as part of the community well i consider incarcerated people as part of the community because they are literally coming back to my community and you're paying taxes Right. For this person to be incarcerated. Exactly. Right. So you're literally paying for their livelihood. Exactly. Right. And when they come, you know, so therefore we all have a responsibility to think about what prison does to people, about whether it's rehabilitative, whether it um, degrades your mental health or your physical health. Hey, we're going to pay your medical bills too when you get out, right? Um, whether you need, you know, you can't get a job, you know, and you have to go on public assistance when you leave prison. We're paying for that too, right? So 
if we can just step back and take a holistic view of this, right, a more... I don't know. I want to say a more humanistic view, but that sounds kind of like tree hugging. Um, God forbid. Yeah, God forbid. I mean, I'm I'm a tree hugger, but you know, I, I've tried to deliver this language in a more objective way. <laughs> uh, you know. It makes me ask others to think about what prison is for, right? And I know this is something else we should probably talk about as well. Do we even know why we send people to prison? We, we generally outline four purposes of imprisonment, if imprisonment, right? Um, incapacitation, just literally like holding people who might endanger us. Um, rehabilitation, we maybe seek to rehabilitate them. That's become a bit of a joke in our country. Deterrence, which is sort of like the foundational idea um, that sits under all of our criminal codes and our systems of punishment, right? Why do we punish people? We try to deter in two ways. We try to deter that particular person from doing the crime, doing crime again or committing crime again. It's called specific deterrence. And we also try to deter everyone else from, you know, if you know that the punishment for murder is the death penalty, then hopefully you will be, you won't murder, right? Or, you know, if you know the punishment for DUI is, you know, you got to blow into this tube in your steering wheel and you, you know, get points in your license and this and that, you won't do it. So we deter also. And finally, the fourth purpose is just to punish, Right. That sometimes like you look at a person like James Holmes. Right. Or, um, you know, or any of these like really like brutal shooters in, in recent years. And, you know, sometimes it, it's hard to even consider the other purposes. Right. We absolutely want them incapacitated. Right. But are we seeking to rehabilitate James Holmes? Right. Are we um, seeking to deter him? I don't think so. He's in prison for life. Uh, deter him from what? Right. So what, what's left? If, if those aren't the purposes of incarcerating a criminal, what's left? It's only incapacitation and punishment. And guess what? That's what we do. We're awesome at that. The U.S. is the best at incapacitation and punishment. Um, you know, I'd love to hear your views on what rehabilitation looks like mm. in facilities. Oh, what a way the table has turned. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> why, don't, why don't you guys tell me a little bit about what you think about the rehabilitative prospects of prison? Oh, mm -hmm. my, my mm -hmm. view on rehabilitation in the Department of Corrections. Um, hmm. You know, some people have the theory that you're free no matter what, as long as you're free on the inside kind of thing. Mm -hmm. That's even books. It's literature that's passed out in DOC often, free on the inside. Um, Meaning internally. Internally, you know. <laughs> Meaning in, internally, so like a state of mind. Correct. But the thing is, is that... Uh, Yes, you can use the system, but I think the problem is, is there's not enough accountability mm. to the crime. And what does that look like? Is it restorative justice? I don't want to give anybody else credit for the growth that I've made, mm -hmm. you know? And so I feel like I have changed myself because I've chosen to. I have educated myself. I have made those strides. Do I want to give credit to some people? Yes, but I don't want the Department of Corrections as a whole to feel like they've rehabilitated me. Mm. I was whole to begin with. I had a diversion sentence when I first was arrested at 18, three days after my 18th birthday. No, not three days. If somebody checks the files, they'll be like, she was lying. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no, it was, it was shortly, I want to say 12 days. Like my memory is not as clear. I do remember if that diversion sentence had not been completely transferred to a DOC sentence, where would my future have been? Because I did 
I did eight years or three years in out. I was a process of the whole system of a product of the system. And I hate to say that because in, in a, a short time when I was on parole successfully at one point in my life, I did create a life. I did create a child. I have done many things. I've loved many people. And I know that I was an asset in the community. Mm-hmm. Am I a threat to society when I look inside myself? I think absolutely not. But I also know that there are victims in my case that I, I wish I could say, not just I'm sorry to, but honor. And it is through things like this podcast that healing can come from that hopefully more people will look inside and go, it's not just the the Denise's that will reoffend. And maybe if we did let her out, what does that look like? Is she going to reoffend? There's no promises to any day with anybody. I, I, um, I think of even correctional staff that the minute they make one wrong decision, their whole life changes and they're sitting in a jail cell too. And they were, went from correctional officer to inmate. Have you seen that happen? Absolutely. There was a, a comment brought up about um, like death row and things like that. And what does it look like long-term for the Department of Corrections to, you know, you come in when you're 18 years old and you have an extended sentence because you had a horrible crime and people are like, lock them up, throw away the key kind of thing. Well, was it, a, was it even thought of when that 18-year-old was sentenced to life or 40 or 50 years, the the drain potentially that would happen as the aging population within the department happens? No, it's considered, but it's not going to be a driving factor in writing that sentencing law, right? Um, Sentencing legislation, they come from our legislatures, our political institutions. Um, And I think we're fairly clear on the fact that, you know, politicians are not necessarily experts in the areas that they are passing legislation in. I mean, this was one of the problems with um, our mandatory minimum laws around um, drugs that that got written in the 1980s. Is you have a bunch of middle-aged legislators writing law about how much drug weight would count as intent to distribute or traffic, etc. You know, and I don't think, you know, a 62-year-old upper middle class senator really has any idea how much heroin is a lot of heroin. Right. Right. And so they, they set those, you know, because, and they set those standards very low. And so that's one of the reasons the war on drugs caught so many people and put so many people in prison for so long is because the people who wrote those laws didn't have much of a sense of, you know, what does drug trafficking actually look like? How much drugs is actually, you know, that counts towards this or that. And that, you know, back to your question, Denise, you know, I think when, you know, we're passing laws about, you know, how long someone should serve for murder or uh, forcible rape or kidnap or just or treason or, or very serious crimes. You know, we don't really think about how much that's going to cost because we, you know, at that moment, we, you know, we sort of think we would pay anything to keep this person away from society, right? This is an extremely dangerous person. They must be locked up. We, we will spend what we need to spend, right? Now, that spending decision doesn't get made or that, that spending doesn't happen until later, right? You pass this law and then you go back to your, you know, your summer home in the mountains and, you know, the next year when the budget gets written, that law is considered and, you know, and the full cost of that law is not going to be realized for years or decades, right? It's not like you pass the law and then suddenly there are 500,000 people in front of you who are being sentenced for murder, right? right. These sentences are going to happen over however many years, you know, 
this law is in place. And so these costs slowly accumulate, right? And it's not like someone goes into a 50-year sentence in a facility and you have to pay up front for that person, right? You just They just become part of the cost of the facility, right? The amount of toilet paper that gets bought will be the amount. The amount of food that gets bought will be the amount. That person's cell already exists, right? right? And so it doesn't feel like you're spending 50K a year, on this person, right? But, right. you know, once you do the, if you do the math, you kind of are, but you're kind of not, right? If you, it, it's also about the complex economics of incarceration as well. If you release that person, the state doesn't get $50,000, right? They don't just mm. get cut a check for 50K, right? They, you're barely going to save anything on that marginal cost because most of the costs are sunk costs, right? The facility exists. You are paying to keep the lights on. Whether you have 10 people in there, whether you have 1,000 people in there, you're paying to keep the lights on in this facility, right? Mm-hmm. So we're doing the simple math around how much it costs to keep somebody per year, but actually adding someone, adding one body to your prison population doesn't actually increase your cost by exactly that that much, right? Um, And so that's also what's kind of complicated about, um, you know, asking stakeholders and actors to consider the costs of their decisions going forward, because those costs are not immediate. Those costs are diluted in various ways. They're um, opaque and uh, non-understandable in other ways. Um, And I think, again, we have to think about what are the needs of political actors, right? It's very, very, there's huge political benefit to standing in front of a legislature and saying, I want to sentence sex offenders to this many years. I want to sentence gang members to this many years. I want to sentence people who kill old people to this many years or hurt children to this many years. You know, you get a lot of benefit from that. You get votes from that. You get funding from that. The shift I've seen in, you know, um, conservatives Mm -hmm. in the way that they're looking at the criminal justice system and that suddenly it almost seems like this is like one of the few things we are agreeing That's on right. is that there is uh, that mass incarceration exists and that yep. we have an issue. Can you talk about what you think that entry point is? Yeah, that's a great question, yeah. Ashley. Um, so I think we agree on the goals or the outcomes, but we don't agree on, Democrats and Republicans don't necessarily agree on why, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the left tends to want lower incarceration rates for humanistic reasons, right? For kind of the things we've been talking about, effect on families, communities, is it really necessary, et cetera, and so forth. The right is more about money, right? The Republican Party is more about money. So as we kind of tap out on incarceration going into the 21st century, as it becomes overwhelmingly expensive, you know, um, Republicans have changed their mantra around crime from tough on crime, which was their mantra in the late 20th century, to smart on crime, right? Which also is very appealing to say and hear. Um, but, you know, what they're saying is we need to spend our money more wisely, which is keep is in line with, you know, a conservative philosophy generally, small government, you know, less spending, more liberty and freedom, et cetera, and so forth. Um, and so, you know, it's not out of, out of step with conservative philosophy generally. So, you know, I would say we don't agree on why, but we agree that there should be fewer incarcerated people, right? That correctional control should be reduced. It's actually, you know, I'll try to be brief about this. It's very um, analogous to what happened with determinate sentencing in the 1970s. This is another thing that Americans really don't understand very well at all. We went, you know, Every state basically shifted from an indeterminate sentencing scheme to a determinate sentencing scheme in the late 1970s, meaning that, you know, instead of judges having more leeway in terms of how they were going to sentence or depart from recommended sentences, they would have to follow rigid grids based Mm -hmm. on your offense and your criminal history. And that happened in part because the left and the right supported that change. Similarly, they supported the same change, but not for the same reason. So the left thought 
indeterminate sentencing could be um, the cause of bias or inequality that judges racial biases, socioeconomic biases, gender biases, et cetera, and so forth, um, would create inequality in sentencing. So the left wanted determinant sentencing schemes, and the right wanted determinant sentencing schemes because it was tougher on crime. Right. So these are just totally different philosophies that just happen to want the same thing. Mm. Right. And so that's what I feel like is kind of happening now. Um, do I care? Yes, I care. But I'm also happy that it opens the policy window for the for the types of programs and um, initiatives that might reduce incarcerated populations or truly get smarter on crime. How do you define crime yeah. and who is a criminal? I'm so curious to know. All right. Well, let's start with who's a criminal. I would say we're all criminals, right? So, you know, sociologists have found that 90% of us um, commit a crime for which we could be incarcerated in any given year, right? So if that's the case, who's not a criminal, right? Show me this 10% that's not committing any crimes. You know, I know I roll stop signs. I jaywalk. I like, you know, whatever. Um, You know, there are pretty much everyone does something, you know, am I on the campus I work on? You know, how many of my students are drinking underage? (laughs) <laughs> right. How many are driving right. drunk? How many are using illicit drugs in their dorm rooms? Right. These are you want to see you think college students are like the you know, this is the clean non-criminal population. I, I don't know. I, I mean, I think, you know, well, that's the question we should be asking is who is a criminal or maybe who is not a criminal. <laughs> right. Um, you know, the s- secondary question to ask is who's most likely to get caught when they commit crime. Right. And this is one of the issues with drug dealing on a college campus versus drug dealing, for example, in a poor community. In a poor community, most drug dealing takes place on corners, stoops, courtyards, public stairwells, et cetera, and so forth. You know, when my students deal drugs back and forth, they're doing it in a locked dorm room, right? With, you know, with the TV on, with their RA, like far away. So, you know, are they, is, is anything different between these two acts? There's nothing different between these two acts. Right. I mean, in terms of just the definition of crime, there's major differences in who's likely to get caught and what's likely to happen to them. You know, these college students at the University of Denver, you know, many of them are, you know, are somewhat well to do. They're probably going to get that private attorney, too. Right. Right. And not a public defender. So um, what is crime? I mean, crime is a moving target is really the best definition I can come up with now some parts of that target move more than others, right? Killing someone has pretty much always been a crime, right? Um, Forcing sex on somebody has pretty much always been a crime. Stealing from others has pretty much always been a crime. But gambling, prostitution, drug use, jaywalking, driving under the influence, right? Um, Cyberbullying, these uh, clearly have not always been crimes. And, you know, in Colorado, we've seen major shifts around some of these things where, again, marijuana was completely illegal for adult use. And now it is like the sort of a major source of revenue for our schools. So, <laughs> right. Like, so what happened to who's a criminal? I don't know. Are these people running pot shops now criminals? Um, I, only the people that sold when it was illegal. Why them and not the pot shop owners? Right. Or, or were the people who sold in 2005 not criminals? I don't know. Right. And what so, is happening to them, by the way? Because I feel like there's a lot there is exoneration going on in Denver. I know that. I okay. work with an organization that has um, facilitated some of that exoneration of, okay. uh, or um, I don't remember the word they use, but it's essentially wiping clean your previous marijuana convictions. I think it's probably county by county across the state of Colorado right now. Yeah. And obviously Denver with a fairly progressive environment um, is, is sort of doing that. I'm guessing that in more conservative communities, that's probably not happening. Jeff, uh, can you say the organization's name? Yes. It's called the Conflict Center. Okay. Thank you. At what point does a person who is a criminal or who was a criminal, when are they not, when are they no longer a criminal? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm, and that's, is that moral? I, that's it. I think that's, yeah, I think that's moral. I think, mm-hmm. you know, you and I would have different 
judgments about that, right? Like, you know, you can think of any kind of, you know, various situations. Here's, here's one, right? We were talking a little bit before about like people getting old in prison, right? Um, so, you know, many states have, you know, quietly enacted kind of what are known as geriatric parole laws that let people out when they're very old or very sick, right? But, you know, what if you're, you're 75 years old, you're dying of cancer, you can't physically hurt anyone anymore, right? But you're a multiple murderer from four decades ago, right? Is that, is this person still a criminal or are they not a criminal, right? Now, four decades have passed. Are they the same person? I would say I'm not the same person as I was four decades ago. I was only four years old. So, um, <laughs> you know, uh, so I'm clearly a different person, but like, you know, 40 years, if I'm lucky enough to make it 40 more years on this planet, you know, will I be like, I'm exactly the same as I was when I was 44? No, it, that would be horrible, if I was the same person as I was when I was 44, I mean, it means I would have exhibited no growth, no evolution, right? right? And so, you know, and just even having casual conversations with the people in this room, you know, we've talked a bit about growth and evolution in prison. Um, and so, you know, again, as you say, Draper, it's, it's a moral question. You know, you might look at somebody and say, you're rehabilitated. I might look at somebody and say, they're not rehabilitated. And, but again, what does that mean? Does that mean they have zero chance of ever committing a crime? Because that's an unreasonable standard. Mm -hmm. right it is like there's zero it, you know i can i look at myself and i would say there's very very little chance i'll ever murder anybody right very low chance for me but can i say with certainty that i never will i cannot say that with certainty right I, if someone threatened yeah. my family mm -hmm. if i got drunk and drove there are many ways that i might murder somebody even either on purpose or not i can't guarantee that i right. won't and most people would look at me and say this is not a criminal we tend to make these huge sweeping general generalizations about who is inside. And it's heartbreaking to me as someone who comes in, who's inside five, six days a week in prisons all over the state of Colorado. And, is, and is, it, I'm talking to people about what they care about and who they are and who they want to be and how they're growing and changing and, and how they've grown and changed since they were incarcerated and mm -hmm. who they want to be in the future. And it's, yeah, I'll get off my soapbox, but I just think no, that it's a good soapbox. for me, I mean, that's why this project exists is that this is all so much more complex than that's we right. realize. And that I understand that not everyone, this isn't, you know, people have, as you said, mortgages and jobs and kids and lives and their own things that not everyone can pour all of themselves into this problem. Yep. But I think it's important at the bare minimum that we realize the complexity. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, what you've really touched on here is a major cultural barrier we have to change, which is that, um, which we talked about a little bit, but like most people don't know incarcerated people, right? I mean, incarceration is not just high in our country, it's distributed unequally, right? So that, you know, the rate of incarceration for black men compared to white men is like something like 6x, right? Um, the rate of incarceration for poor folks you know, versus rich folks is going to be even higher than that. And so, you know, if you're an upper middle class or a wealthy person in America, you, your life is not affected by incarceration, right? People no. are, people are not being taken from your community. Fathers are not disappearing from your community regularly. You know, the police are not arresting people in your community regularly. Whereas in our, you know, poorest communities, our most disadvantaged communities in America, upwards of 50% of the men are missing on any given day. Right. So I don't know. I go back to my childhood and I think if I removed 50% of the adult men from that neighborhood, what would things look like? Right. Right. Mm -hmm. What would, what would right. life look like in my, in my neighborhood? It, mm -hmm. I, I don't know exactly, mm -hmm. but it'd be way different than, you what know, about, and, and we had a relatively high incarceration neighborhood that it, I grew up in. What about women? Because when, you know, oftentimes I, I, women are kind of under looked at in the Department yes. of Corrections, especially in the state. And, you know, what, what happens when you take a mother out of a home? 
Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it has more effect. Research really shows that. Um, so uh, let me just get this. Let me get this right. Um, I believe male and female inmates are about equally likely to be parents, um, but um, female inmates are much more likely to have lived with their child in the previous year. And so, um, uh, so when you do remove when you do incarcerate women um, and female incarceration rates have been, you know, rising fat, you know, they're not dropping as fast as male incarceration rates, basically. Um, you know, it has more of an effect on families because they're more likely to have been the primary caretaker for, for the children. Right. And you know, this is also cultural, but it's just a fact of life um, of how, how things are. So um, uh, yeah. So it has, you know, even though the incarceration rate is lower, it's going to have um, more effect on families. We've been talking about who is responsible for the healing, for the fixing, for the shift. <sighs> wow. And, um, I mean, there are people in this room. We have a, one of our producers in this room who was literally born in prison. Oh, wow. And then we have folks in this, we have several people in this room serving life in prison. Um we have people in this room who were born into families where their, you know, their parents basically were not there mm-hmm. uh, for whatever reason. I mean, where if we are interested in making a long-term, lasting shift, not just from an emotional, cultural standpoint, yeah, but from a on-the-ground, logistic, lived-out, ex- you know, sort of experience, who's responsible? So I would say, so I don't know. I would say maybe all we're all responsible to some extent, right? Mm. But that's a bit of a cop out. Here's what I think, um, and I don't want to cop out of this question because it's a really good question. Um, you know, I think what really needs to change to change to change both the numbers, the experience, you know, the way we run prisons and public opinion of prisons is we need to change our political system. But it's complicated at the state level, right? Um, because again, your prison population is not determined by your Department of Corrections. Your prison population is determined by court decisions, right? Right. And I so, talk, yeah. yeah mm-hmm. Go ahead. I was going to say I talk a lot with wardens about this, about mm-hmm. you know, staff. About it, it's it's hard because I think that people don't always make that jump. Mm-hmm. They want to point the finger right at prisons. That's right. And I think that um, uh, I've had to personally sit in the complexity of that. That, yep. that it's they're not making the decision, right? The, the decision right. is coming through the court system. That's right. And so a lot of times, I've heard folks who work in prison say, you know, you want us to make these changes. Like, we literally do not have the choice. That's right. That's right. So change the court system. That's right. But the layman, yeah. I, don't, I don't think often layman is aware that you need to vote your prosecutors into That's office. Right. You mm-hmm. need to vote your district attorneys and your judges that sit in your local courts. Those are, we the local guy on the corner who's dealing crack cocaine, if he's still free and he can vote, he has the power to change mm-hmm. who's sitting that might potentially judge him 10 years down the road if he so gets caught. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's bringing awareness to people that you hold the power of your vote That's and right. getting involved at local and local and state, not all, not state, just local levels, knowing who your representatives are of your district, right. reaching out to them, getting involved at that level and, and taking interest because it is your neighbor. It is you. It's potentially your husband. It's potentially your brother. It's potentially your 17 year old mm-hmm. child that can it, be affected. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's just bringing the awareness because I didn't know it took me many, many 20, 20 years to start really realizing who has the power. It's right. me myself.
Jeff, do you have any last things you want to say? I just want to say thank you so much for for having me. This is a really interesting and fun conversation for me about some very hard things. And uh, it's just wonderful to meet you all. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Right on. Here at Within, we have a resident poet. His name is William S. Graham. He is a resident at DRDC, and Will likes to sit in the corner of the vault, which we've come to call Will's Corner, and write poems. Poems for the people that we're interviewing. Poems that reflect their stories. This poem is called In Translation, and it's for Jeff Lynn. Look at me. A translation of thoughts, judged by numbers and facts alone, as if I'm salt, sprinkled among my peers, years of silently shouting, am I the only one who sees this? My language, a dauntless pond, I beg you to come fish, ask me to dance. The ballroom of life, my political lab, I'll share what I know, I promise. Let's run up a tab, it's easy to feed the sky with bold eyes. Let's challenge our hearts to real language, real communication, only then, if when, we will begin to see the definition of in translation. Next time on Within, Otis Bell, resident at Lyman Correctional Facility. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, Lord, don't, please, just let me keep my mind. Just let me hold on to my mind while I'm here because I can understand that we have to be punished, but ain't this severe? We wanted to include more voices from incarcerated folks across the state of Colorado. So we started a newsletter. It's called Reverberations from Within. If you're interested in reading it or in sending pieces of writing into it, visit our website at thisiswithin.com. If you're incarcerated in the state of Colorado and you want to submit material to our newsletter, please speak to your programs manager in your facility. Within is a collaborative production between the University of Denver Prison Arts Initiative and the Colorado Department of Corrections. Our hosts are Denise Presson, resident of Denver Women's Correctional Facility, Andrew Draper, resident of Sterling Correctional Facility, and executive producer and DUPI founder and director, Ashley Hamilton. Within is produced by Caroline Sheehan. Associate producers are Michael J. Clifton and Sarah Berry, both of whom are incarcerated. Mr. William S. Graham is our resident poet as well as a resident of the Denver Reception and Diagnostic Center. Media production and creative support by Angel Lopez and Chuck Martinez, both of whom are residents of Sterling Correctional Facility. Our newspaper liaison is Terry Mosley Jr., who is also a resident of Sterling Correctional Facility. Sound engineering and editing by Jonathan Howard. Full episode details, resources, and additional content, including how to subscribe to our podcast and newsletter, Reverberations from Within, is located on our website at thisiswithin.com. <laughs>